The voyage of discovery is not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. What is your fifth vital sign saying about your health? Find out in this episode. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Kieran Dunstan, shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. Lean in and get ready to experience the bountiful, blissful, and beautiful vitality that you deserve. Welcome back, bountiful, blissful, beautiful human being. I am so grateful you're here to join me for this new episode of the podcast. Do you know what your fifth vital sign is? Well, you know, when you go to your doctor, they always check your temperature, your pulse, blood pressure, and your respiratory rate, right? Well, these are your standard four vital signs that the doctor checks each and every time. Why? Because these are key indicators of how your overall health is doing. But in 2017, Pilar Weigal and other authors published a comprehensive review in the Linacre Quarterly, the oldest continuously published bioethics journal in the United States, and concluded that ovulation has been recognized as an event linked with reproduction. However, recent evidence supports the role of ovulation as a sign of health. And I quote, For women, the other vital sign that is equally as important as pulse, blood pressure, respiratory rate, and temperature is ovulatory function, as demonstrated by the state of her menstrual cycle. You may not be accustomed to understanding that this is a key indicator of overall health. However, it's something you should familiarize yourself with. Why is this a key indicator of a woman's overall health? That's a great question. Because the interactivities that go into creating the outer signs of a regular and healthy menstrual flow are activities that affect your whole body and all of its systems, not just your reproductive health. So that if you're having irregular, painful, or heavy periods or symptoms like fibroid tumors, endometriosis, ovarian, or breast cysts, These are indicators that there are processes that have gone awry in your body that are not only an inconvenience for sure and uncomfortable now, but ultimately will result in other symptoms and dis-ease elsewhere in the body. But why is this? Because all systems in your body are connected. The sex hormones that you may be aware of not only contribute to the regulation of your fertility and sex drive, but also to your brain health and mood, your musculoskeletal health, including bone density, muscle mass, and body fat percentage and distribution. They contribute to the health of your skin, hair, and nails, and your soft tissues, and your cardiovascular and respiratory systems, and your gastrointestinal health as well. Every tissue and every system in the body is affected by your sex hormones. So sex hormones are not just about sex. They are about your overall state of health. This is why the key indicator of sex hormone function, your menstrual cycle, is considered a fifth vital sign that must be attended to. I know this is probably not what you've experienced in your doctor's office so far. And well, that's because in mainstream medicine right now, the body systems are seen as discrete and separate. That's why you go to the gynecologist for female issues and the dermatologist for skin issues and the gastroenterologist for gut issues and so on and on and on. But nothing could be further from the truth. Your body sees no separation between or among systems. Everything functions as a whole, and all systems are connected and affect each other. It's the root causes of hormone imbalance, toxicity, nutritional deficiency, and energetic imbalance that cause all disease. You've probably heard me say this many, many times. The shortest way to say this is too much bad stuff inside the body, and that's toxicity. 
not enough good stuff inside, and that's nutritional and supportive factors, and lack of balance. This is what creates disease or dis-ease. In today's episode, we are diving into this fifth vital sign and exactly what it means with Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, author of The Fifth Vital Sign. We'll help you understand why it's important, what to look for, and most of all, how to manage problems with this fifth vital sign. We're going to get into solutions. We'll cover traditional medical treatments and the pros and cons of those and more holistic alternatives to address the root cause of dysfunction with this vital sign. There is so much important ground to cover on this topic, so you'll want to listen to the whole episode as we give each topic the time and attention it deserves. And if you're wanting even more information, I'll tell you how to find that at the end. So let me tell you a little about Lisa and we'll get started. Lisa Hendrickson-Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. Welcome, Lisa. I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. When I learned about your book, The Fifth Vital Sign, and what it talked about, because honestly, that was new to me. I had never heard the menstrual cycle called The Fifth Vital Sign as an OBGYN. That wasn't something I had encountered. And when I learned more about it, and it's so true, and I'm thinking, why didn't I know this? And that's a topic we'll probably get into during the podcast. There really are a lot of historical roots about why we don't understand as women and as women physicians, the importance of the menstrual cycle as a key indicator of health. But let's start out by you talking about what do you mean the fifth vital sign. Yeah, no, that's a great place to start. There's a growing number of health professionals, many of whom are medical doctors, and particularly as it relates to teenage girls, that we should really be looking at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. And so an example of that would be understanding when the menstrual cycle is supposed to start and then being aware of that and having that being one of the questions in a routine medical checkup that, you know, adolescent girls are, are having. And so most people are used to the four main vital signs, heart rate, body temperature, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. And, you know, especially as an OB, you know that we have an accepted range for all of these main vital signs. And if you have a patient whose temperature is really high, I mean, obviously a fever indicates a specific type of issue. If her blood pressure is too high or too low, not only does it give some information that the body's struggling or the body's not functioning, but it also provides a specific roadmap. Okay, so these are some of the reasons why the blood pressure would be too high, and then you have a sense of where to look. So with the menstrual cycle, I think first and foremost, understanding that having a regular ovulatory menstrual cycle is actually important for health and is an important sign of health, regardless of whether or not a woman is trying to have a baby. I think that if anything, for the listeners to take from the conversation, it's kind of like, let's start there, because we seem to be in a situation where we only think that it matters if a woman is ovulating and menstruating if she's trying to have a baby. And if she's not trying to have a baby, it's like we think it doesn't matter. But there's a number of health conditions that show up and disrupt the menstrual cycle. And when we pay attention to the menstrual cycle, that can be the first sign. So hypothalamic amenorrhea is a great example of that when a woman completely stops, a woman of reproductive age, when she completely stops ovulating and then menstruating, we know that it's typically related to a combination of overexercise, under nutrition and stress, 
and we often see it in athletes. But when you look at the research, women who stop menstruating for long periods of time increase rapid bone loss and increase their lifetime risk of osteoporosis. Women who have irregular cycles, who are somewhere on the PCOS spectrum, are more likely to develop diabetes, type 2 diabetes in their lifetime. And so these early indicators that we're seeing in the menstrual cycle can really be giving us some deeper information about health. And so that's basically why I named the book The Fifth Vital Signs. We can really start having that conversation about the connection between the menstrual cycle and overall health. Yeah, I think it's so important because in medicine, typically it's your overall health and, oh yeah, there is that that thing, that menstrual cycle <laughs> that allows you to have a baby, but we don't need to worry about it unless you want to get pregnant and are having trouble. And if you're having a problem, we'll just stick you on hormonal suppression with birth control pills or Depo, Provera, or some other hormonal suppressive. And we don't need to worry about that. But just like if you take someone's temperature and it's 102 degrees, you need to ask the question, why is it 102 degrees? What's going on? The same should be happening for our menstrual cycles. We shouldn't just be suppressing it. Like you just don't just give Tylenol to bring a fever down and go, oh yeah, you'll be fine. You figure out why someone is mounting a febrile response. Same should be true for our menstrual cycles. We should be checking hormone levels, which there is no standard of care in medicine for doing that. And we should be evaluating why. And we shouldn't just accept that, oh, well, she had heavy painful periods. We put her on the pill. Now she's fine and taken care of because the same hormonal and other disruptions in the body that created those symptoms are still at play metabolically affecting health. They're affecting sex drive and things like increasing the risk of diabetes, as you mentioned, and a whole host of other things. And I'm getting on my soapbox. I don't want to do that too badly (laughs) too early. Although this is something that is really a, a pet peeve of mine. So how did you become so interested and passionate about fertility awareness? and holistic reproductive health? I think like most women or many women who find themselves in a similar field, I struggled with period issues from my first period. I, From my very first period, I had really heavy and painful periods. And so as a young teenager, I didn't have any knowledge of how to manage it. So I heard that the pill makes your periods lighter and more manageable, your periods, air quotes. And so that's what I did. You know, I, I went on the pill. My doctor put me on the pill after I completed half of a sentence. Heavy, painful, writing the prescription already. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that was kind of the start. But see, with my experience on the pill, because at that time I wasn't sexually active, so I wasn't always taking it consistently. I read the whole insert and I remember reading about how if you didn't take it at the right time, you'd have to take two or whatever the, the insert said of how to manage that. And I would sometimes go off of it for a couple months just to see if my actual periods were better. And they never were. Mm-hmm. They would always be just as heavy or painful or sometimes worse. Right. So I had this interesting experience of being on it, not for birth control, having it really make my pill periods easy, but having every time I came off of it, the issue still being there. And I also had my father who would always be like, are you still taking that pill? So, and he kind of always just bring it to my attention. So I suppose in my experience, when I actually did need birth control, I didn't feel comfortable being on the pill. I knew that I wasn't always taking it at the right time. And I felt like I would just always be afraid that I could potentially be pregnant and I would just use condoms every time. And so then I grew up in the 80s and 90s when condoms were actually advertised as effective birth control. So my thought was like, well, if I'm always going to use condoms, why do I need the pill? And that was around the time that I discovered fertility awareness. I had this just sense that it wasn't normal for the periods to be so painful. So to put it into perspective, I've had two children now. (laughs) It's been a long time since I was a teenager. And yeah, the period pain that I had was significantly worse than those early stages of labor. So we'll never know if I had a touch of endo, endometriosis, because my symptoms, I I don't have painful periods anymore. I've done a lot of made a lot of changes. But that's really where it started. I discovered fertility awareness when I was about 18 or 19 years old. I was looking for a way not to be on the pill because I was also concerned that I had a problem and that the pill wasn't fixing it. And I didn't want to have babies when I was 20, but I did. I also didn't want to kind of, I just felt like I didn't want anything externally to make it worse, if that makes sense. 
And so very early on, I started, I discovered fertility awareness on my university campus. And I was also, there was a group of women who, some of whom were trained and certified educators. I took a training class in my early 20s and started teaching women how to chart. And then I kind of did that for a while. But as I think one of the big when I really transitioned into a more public place of sharing this information was around the time when I had my first son. Because around that age, so many of my friends are getting pregnant, but so many other women were having trouble conceiving. And I really felt this obligation to share this basic knowledge because even though I have been teaching this and in this field for almost 20 years, the average woman still has no idea just the basic function of her menstrual cycle, that she's not fertile every day, that the menstrual cycle isn't just about having babies, that it does indicate overall health. You know, these are things that all women should know, but most women have never heard of. Yes. And and like with most, your painful journey led to your, your passion and your expertise. And I can relate to that. I know when I was a kid and I first started having periods, I actually was 10. They were so horribly painful. I was incapacitated capacitated and would miss school. And this went on for a period of years. I have to say that I think that did contribute to uh, some of my interest in going into women's health. Although I had a very different mindset at that time, I really saw, because this is what I was taught in my training, that the whole menstrual cycle was this kind of add-on app to your <laughs> yes. to your body's health that just, you know, all it had to do with was reproduction, fertility, and sex drive. And that's really all you needed to worry about. So suppress it till you need it, unsuppress it when you need it, have your children and, and go. And, and now I know as a functional practitioner that nothing could be further from your, the truth, that the menstrual cycle is a key indicator of your overall health and the sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone are vital for all functions because you have more sex receptors in your central nervous system than you do anywhere else, which tells you that they're important for cognitive function, for mood, memory. So they they have vital functions and they really need to take their place in being evaluated and given the respect that they deserve. I love how you said your pill period in quotes. <laughs> so talk about that because I don't think most women understand what the pill is doing to their menstrual cycle and to their body. And they think that the period they get on the pill is the same as the period they get off of the pill. And I have spend a lot of time trying to educate women and help them understand that that is not really a period. So can you help people understand that? Oh, I would love to. Okay. So I was recently doing a bit of reading actually into the, like I talk about in the book, the history of the pill. And I think it's helpful in a case like this because when the first pill was developed in the article that I was reading, so this was in the fifties, the first pill came on the market in the sixties. There apparently was no medical requirement for the doctors to even let the patients know what they were testing. So you had a group of women, many of whom had been trying to get pregnant for a long time and the doctors didn't really tell them what they were testing, but they basically said, you know, we're going to give you this drug and while you're taking it, you can't get pregnant. But when we stop giving it to you, then it's going to increase your chances of getting pregnant. And so back then, the pill formulation, the first pill formulations were orders of magnitude higher dosage than the pills today. So the women who were taking it, many had nausea, became dizzy and had more kind of overt symptoms while they were taking it. Symptoms that seemed like pregnancy, then they also stopped menstruating, they stopped ovulating and therefore they stopped getting their periods. So these women were convinced that they were pregnant. And the doctors had a really hard time convincing them that they weren't. And a lot of the women became devastated because they really did think they were pregnant. And so in order to understand what the pill does, it is not a cycle. The pill suppresses ovulation. And what came out of that first experiment was that the creators of the pill decided to add in this fake bleed. So they decided to withdraw. So you take the, before they had the women taking the pill every day, and then they had them come off of it for four days at that time, and then they would bleed, and then they would start taking it again. So 
from the very beginning, the pill bleed, the artificial pill bleed was never created because it was medically necessary. From the inception of (laughs) the pill, it was created to make it seem like it was a a period so that the women really felt like they were still menstruating so that they didn't get confused and think they were pregnant so that it would really just maintain the status quo. And so now it seems very controversial because there's a lot of research papers, a lot of doctors that are coming out and questioning the use of this artificial, like questioning the pill cycle, questioning this artificial bleed. And there is research to show that when you have, let's say you're 21 days on and then seven days off, for example, that there is some degree of follicular development that begins. And so they're arguing that it might be, the pill might be more effective if they actually skip that artificial bleed. So a lot of women are saying, oh, this is horrible. They're saying that we don't need to have a period because they think that it was a period. It was never a period. Right. It's a withdrawal bleed. And let's just touch on a few other myths. Some women think that the period cleans you out somehow or detoxifies you. Does not, does it? (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing about it is I think that, first of all, we have to establish that the pill bleed is not the same. Right. So when you have a regular ovulatory menstrual cycle, so I would argue that a a true menstrual period is necessary and and you are supposed to have it. And so in a, in a normal ovulatory cycle during the first stage of your cycle, you, you know, you, you finish your period and then you gradually build up to ovulation. During that time, you're producing, your ovaries are producing estrogen. That estrogen gradually builds up the lining, it replenishes the lining, it replaces the functional layer of the endometrium. And then after ovulation, you produce progesterone. You don't produce progesterone unless you, like significant amounts of progesterone unless you ovulate. And then progesterone, it matures that uterine lining. It helps to initially proliferate and then has an anti-proliferative effect on the uterine lining. And so what you end up with is a fully developed, complete uterine lining. And if you're not pregnant at the end of that, then it sheds. So many women who have been on the pill notice that their pill periods are different. Some women will note that it's heavier or lighter than a typical period, but it is different. When you're on the pill, you're not getting estrogen and you're not getting progesterone. Right, you're, you're getting synthetic, <laughs> synthetic version of something that looks enough like estrogen that it your body it goes into your estrogen receptors, but it's not estrogen, and the progestins are not progesterone. Your uterine lining never fully develops on the pill. When they test the uterine lining, it's thinner. That's one of the main functions of hormonal birth control that it prevents the endometrium from fully developing. So, you know, I would say that a true menstrual period is necessary, and it it happens after you actually ovulate. Whether or not the artificial bleed is necessary is another story. But if you recognize that that is not a period and that your endometrial lining is never fully developing and it's not the same as having your period, then it does make that question more complex. Is it necessary or not? Right. And I guess what I was just getting to in terms of the detox is that essentially, yes, you're shedding with a normal period that your body makes itself. It's like getting your hair cut. It's extra hair you don't need. You didn't get pregnant, so you let it go. And so I do think there's this misperception among women that toxins go into the endometrial lining and they get rid of them. That's not generally the case. And then what are some of the effects of birth control on the rest of the body? So I think you talked a little bit about that Our body naturally has three types of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. Birth control pills have chemically altered forms of these hormones, so they're not the same as what your body naturally has. And so what does that do to the rest of the body? That's a really great question. I think that I suppose a good place to start is just some of the side effects. Uh Understanding that some of the most common side effects in the body are depression, anxiety, mood changes, low libido. So when you're having this influx of these synthetic estrogens, it is suppressing your natural hormones. You mentioned some of the myths. One of the myths about the pill is that it makes your body think it's pregnant or that even the idea that it's kind of like a natural state in the body. But if you were to measure the natural hormones that a woman's producing during that time, it would actually more closely mirror the pattern of menopause. Yes. (laughs) When you're in menopause, you have this low level of these hormones that's kind of stable. 
And so no one wants to think that when they're on hormonal contraceptives, it's like they're going into an early chemical temporary menopause. But that would be the closest comparison. And you mentioned the ovarian hormones, the estrogens, plural, progesterone and testosterone. And so one of the most significant impacts then, considering that it's suppressing ovarian function, so it's basically shutting down the ovaries, is that it's suppressing the testosterone production significantly. You mentioned sexual function. One of the effects in other areas of the body is depressed sexual function. So low libido, some women report when you look at the the research studies that they have either more difficult time orgasming or less sensation, less enjoyable. And there's studies that have actually measured, say, the tissues around the vaginal opening and the, the clitoris and have shown that the pill causes those tissues to thin out. So women who are on contraceptives have a thinner skin around the opening of the vagina, the clitoris. There are studies that have shown that the clitoris decreases in size, so shrinks the clit, which isn't something that... And one of the studies that I quote in the book had a fairly small sample size. And so I've had people criticize the research and say, well, you know, the research that you're citing, it's a small sample size. Is it statistically significant? I think that one of the questions that you'd want to be asking is, who's funding the research? Right. And is, it in the benefit, is it in the benefit of the drug companies? I mean, if you have a study, so it was a small sample size, all of the participants in that study showed a decrease in clitoral volume after the pill, three to six months of pill use. All of the participants in the average decrease in size was 20%. You would think that that would warrant future research. You would feel like that would be like, okay, so this is a pretty significant finding. Let's continue the research and get a bigger, you know, thousand women, get a bigger sample size. But is it really in the benefit of the drug company to prove that hormonal contraceptives potentially has this negative impact on not just our sexual function and the way we feel and our sex drive, but our actual vulvar tissues, right? <laughs> you know, you're bringing up so many great points. And so anytime you're looking at a study that has an outcome, what you need to do is ask who funded the study and why did they fund it? And you can basically design a study to show whatever it is that you want to show or disprove. And I don't think that the average person knows that. And so they'll fixate on, well, it's a small study. Well, if a company that produces oral contraception funded the study, basically they want to prove that it doesn't have side effects. They're going to purposely do a small powered study with a fewer number of participants so that you can't reach statistical power. And then they can say, well, it's a small study. Yeah, we don't have that problem. And so I think that people need to be cognizant that, you know, you need to really take with a grain of salt anything you hear that a study showed, because I could even design a study to prove whatever it is that I want to prove or disprove. I can tell you as a gynecologist who has done, who has looked at thousands, tens of thousands of clitorises, vulvas, vaginas, cervices, that the birth control pill absolutely causes the changes that you just discussed and also causes decrease in sex drive. So hypoactive sexual desire disorder, anorgasmia, difficulty to orgasm, depression, anxiety, all kinds of the symptoms that you've mentioned. And when I kind of realized and got hip to the functional medicine and started checking women's hormones, what I was shocked to find is that almost all of the women having those symptoms, if you check their hormones, they are in a menopausal state of, yeah. of hormone balance. And they feel like menopausal women. And so when I would explain that to them and they'd say, well, no wonder I can't have an orgasm and I have no desire to be with my partner whom I love very much and I've been with for 10 years and they would get off and I'd find in the majority of women that the natural hormones will come back now if they had a hormonal imbalance before they went on the pill and that's why they went on the pill, that hormonal imbalance will still be waiting for them once they go off the pill. And then you have to work to correct that. But I think that you you bring up so many important points. You can actually, I can see on exam the thinning of the epidermal covering over the clitoris and labia. You can start to see labial fusion like you do and thinning. You see that in menopausal women 
as they get older, if they don't have hormone replacement, the labia get very thin and eventually they fuse together and that you don't have labia anymore. And it just becomes this vaginal hole. And then that vaginal hole will start shrinking. And I had a patient one time who was 104 years old and her vagina had scarred down to less than a centimeter in size. And most women don't realize that that's a possibility or a reality, but it can happen if you go through menopause and you're not on hormone replacement. But it can also happen to you if you're on hormonal suppression birth control. And my cousin recently, a doctor told her that she said to her something about, yeah, you, your vagina can can cave in. That's what she said. And she called me up. She was horrified. She said, is that true that my vagina is going to cave in if I don't take hormones? And I'm like, yeah, well, but yeah, that can happen. I really want to highlight that point. I talked to lots of women who have sexual dysfunction and they're on these hormonal IUDs and nobody has explained to them that this this is a thing, but it is a thing. And they're on birth control pills. They're on continuous birth control pills. They're on Depo-Provera or implants. So I think it's very important. And it's also important to highlight that it affects mood and memory and cognitive function as well. And so if you're not feeling as sharp as you usually are, or as happy as you usually are, or as motivated and self-directed, then you might want to take a look at your hormones. If you're feeling freaked out by this information, stay tuned. Lisa and I explain why this is and what to do about it. We also get into the fact that years ago, it was illegal for physicians to discuss birth control with their patients. Stay tuned. Hey, have you been feeling anxious about the current climate and new risks to your health? And wondering if your overall level of health is good enough to support you if you were to get sick? You are not alone. Now more than ever, your health has got to be brilliant, support you, and shine. It's time to stop procrastinating on getting the evaluation, knowledge, tools, and support that you know you need to address the roots of what's going wrong with your health, keeping you tired, overweight, lacking in stamina, and on prescription medications. That is just not good enough anymore. New threats mean you've got to develop a better defense, and I'm here to help. I personally invite you to schedule a complimentary phone consultation with me wherever you live to discuss your personal health concerns and how a comprehensive holistic root cause approach can help you not only alleviate the current symptoms you're having, but also boost your level of health resilience. It's all about resilience now. You can sign up on my website, kirandunstonmd.com, where there's additional information about supercharging your wellness during this important time in our history. Welcome back, everybody. Well, and can I jump in? Please. I mean, this is such an important, I think that one of the challenges with sharing this information, as I'm sure you find, is that it freaks women out because it's really terrifying. This is huge to think that you're taking a birth control and not only can it affect your mood, but it can affect you physically. That's very obviously disturbing. I think that there are people I mean, I've had some flack come back at me for sharing this information, even though it's cited and I share the research studies because people are really resistant to this idea and it really freaks them out. I think it's really helpful to talk about why, like we talked about the hormones. Yeah. So I think it's helpful to understand how hormonal birth control works so that you know there's a difference between kind of like the effects and then the side effects. So what I mean by that is that all women on hormonal contraceptives, particularly the combined synthetic estrogen progestin combinations, all women are going to experience a dramatic reduction in their natural estrogen estrogens, plural, progesterone and testosterone. And that's because the pill shuts down ovarian function. So when we're talking about these specific physical effects to the vulvar tissues, that is related to this significant reduction in free testosterone that occurs 
for all women on the pill. But the thing is that even though all women are going to experience this drop in testosterone, it doesn't mean that it's going to manifest the same way in every every woman. So some women are going to experience sex to be painful, but some women don't necessarily describe that they've had a reduction in libido. Like how you experience this personally is not the same for every woman. So it's helpful to understand what's happening hormonally and to have that understanding of like, the reason that these tissues are shrinking is in part due to this significant reduction in testosterone that's being caused, particularly for women who have had these symptoms and have either been told that it's in their head who've been given counseling because they're not feeling they have a libido. As women, we're so often dismissed. I think it's so helpful to understand that there's a physical reason for this that is proven in the literature that we know about. But the other thing is that because I just find that when you share this information with women, of course, it's like, is it permanent? Does this mean I'm just like, I've been on the pill for 20 years. I'm listening to this podcast. You're telling me that it's shriveling up my vulva. Like, does this mean that I'm going to have like this permanent effect on my tissues? And so you mentioned something that's really important, which is that when you look at hormonal birth control, there isn't evidence to show that it has a permanent effect. The body's so resilient and most women do regain sexual function and libido and those types of things. I feel like it's helpful to mention that because a lot of women get yeah. really freaked out about it. Yes, let's mention that. So people might be wondering, well, why does the clitoris shrink and why does the skin over it become thinner? So all of these tissues are hormonally sensitive and they depend on the sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, to stimulate them, to keep them healthy, to keep them highly vascularized so blood flows to the area. And when they don't have the proper stimulation, the blood flow decreases and the, the skin there becomes thin and the sensory nerves start decreasing in density. So what I always like to help people understand is that when you just have a functional problem, so if someone say they've been on the birth control for a year and they're starting to notice that their sex drive is down and some of the other symptoms we've mentioned, if you take them off of the birth control and their own hormones come back, that functional problem usually reverses pretty readily. Once you have an anatomic problem, meaning the clitoris has shrunk significantly, the labia have actually fused or even gone away, it's much harder to reverse that. You can change the hormones, get off the hormonal birth control suppression, but the body doesn't really have a template to reverse and regrow labia. It can increase clitoral size, and that can happen with appropriate hormonal replacement. So if someone is less than 40, usually her own hormones will kick back in. Now, 40 to 50, it could kick back in, but you know that's when the hormonal decline leading to menopause typically starts. And if someone's over 50, definitely going to need some type of hormonal replacement. But I've worked with patients um, in their late 50s and early 60s who had significant shrinkage in those areas and decreased sensation and orgasmia. And there are tools that we can use, hormones part of that, but to increase blood flow, there are actually some devices you can use to bring more blood flow to the area and restore normal sexual function. So if you're listening, please don't freak out. These changes can be improved and you can get back to a normal sex drive. I think another important question, Lisa, to to tap on is why is it this way? (laughs) Right? I mean, we were talking a little in the pre-chat and like, even if you never want to have children, don't you want to have the option to have healthy orgasms and great sex? Like, don't you want to have the option of not having bone loss? And I don't know that we are going to necessarily get to the actual reason why. As I mentioned before, I think that there are some really deep historical roots to this desire to keep women in the dark about their bodies. When I was reading about the history of the pill, one of the things that I came across and I had to like read over it a couple times was that there was a time when it was illegal for doctors to talk about birth control with their patients. <laughs> it was illegal. And wow. when the pill came out and Planned Parenthood was established. It wasn't called Planned Parenthood when it was first established. This was one of the things when, even when they came out with the first pill, Inovid, it wasn't, I feel like, I wish I had the article in front of me, but it wasn't overtly described to prevent birth control. I believe that it was 
promoted as a way to solve period issues, even from the beginning, from what I was reading in the article. So it's hard as a woman who of my generation, it's hard to imagine a time when it would have been illegal to counsel a woman on birth control. And so if you think about that piece of the history, we've obviously come a long way, but it would give us some sort of context for why we still are not provided with complete information about how our menstrual cycles work, about even how the birth control works. As a doctor, I mean, I'm curious what your experience has been. We were talking about the research literature. I cited one of the studies in my in the book and it was a study that was done to determine the characteristics of the women who complained about birth control and already I'm on the defensive I'm like this is what you you have all this time and money and this is what you're studying you're trying to find out what are the characteristics of the women who complain so that you can identify them and isolate them and and so they had a right so they had all these women on birth control and 50% of the study participants reported side effects, whether it was sexual and mood issues with the pill, 50% half. And the conclusion that the researchers came to was that it is hard for clinicians to provide accurate information about the side effects without unduly discouraging women from using it. Isn't and so, that interesting? Yeah. So with medicine, there's def, there's this, there's kind of like this idea that you know, we just need to get people to take the medication. And the biggest barrier is to kind of like overcome their objections around it. Yeah. And just as from a couple decades being a clinician, what I will say is that probably there are more women who have side effects, but they are led to believe that they're not from the birth control pill. I've known many clinicians to tell patients that's not because of the pill, including sex drive problems. That is really the party line. It's not affecting your sex drive. And in my experience, nothing could be further from the truth. So there is this discouragement and there is kind of the mentality of just get them to take it so that they believe in it. So belief is a part Part of it. And, you know, placebo effect is based on your belief. And so if you can get someone to believe that it's healthy for them, it's not causing side effects, well, then they're happy. And then honestly, I'm going to say it and some people are going to be upset, but they're going to stay out of your office and not need more care. But the problem is that you're not really getting to the root cause. And this is why I don't practice mainstream medicine anymore, because it doesn't give people the respect that they deserve. And I think that if you look back to when the birth controls first were instituted, I believe it came out of, they initially had started giving horse estrogen equiline to menopausal women. And someone thought that would be the elixir of life. And they did have improvements. And it kind of grew out of that movement, which I think that started in the 50s. And then they had, so that was Premarin. And then somewhere along the line, somebody thought, oh, well, let, let's give it to younger women to suppress ovulation. But it kind of makes sense to me that it would have some illegal legality about it because if you look at it, our sexual health is very much legislated politically, what we're allowed to do sexually and not allowed to do sexually. And so I could look back to that culture in the 1950s and see where there would have been a lot of taboos, particularly politically, because They wanted to suppress sexuality in general and talking about giving a woman the ability to reproduce sexually without having the consequence of becoming pregnant not for the purpose of procreation, for entertainment and pleasure, actually brings in what I think a lot of the laws are intended to do, which is remove the aspect of pleasure from our sexuality. Is this making sense? It is. I think it's, so the more that I read about that time, it's so hard because we're so removed from that. When I was reading, so in order to look at that history and write that part of the book, there's a, a book that I read and I still have it somewhere on my bookshelf. And I think it's called The Pill Doctor. And it's this, it's just, it's a, a book that takes you through all the things that happened with the two main men behind the pill, along with Margaret Stanger. So John Rock and, and Gregory Pincus. And If my memory serves me correct, John Rock was a physician. And one of his challenges was that, so this is a time when the average woman was having four to six kids, average. So even women who weren't that interested in having kids, 
So back then, if you weren't that interested in having kids, you'd probably have four. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. And then if you did love having kids or you were in a relationship where you like you, there was no negotiation, you would end up with 18. Right. Like this is, this is a completely different time. And so there were women who would just keep having kids. They'd just be perpetually pregnant. And eventually they would just beg the doctor to give them a hysterectomy so they could stop having kids. So this is a very different time. And I think this is one of the reasons why when you question hormonal birth control, when you have a conversation like you and I are having right now, a lot of feminists get their backs up and say, well, you know, the pill was what led us to sexual liberation. You can't talk badly about it. This is really what created the world that we have today. Imagine a time when you didn't have any choice, when you would just get pregnant and you just, you know, you didn't really have the ability to have that conversation with your partner about how many kids you wanted. And you didn't really have a way to stop just the continual pregnancies from happening. It's very hard to imagine because our world is very different now. But I mean, irony upon ironies, the drug that was supposed to represent the sexual revolution, the drug that was supposed to... So I was reading Margaret Stanger. Her vision was, from what I read, I don't know her personally, so, you know, paraphrasing, but from what I read, her vision was a drug that would allow us to separate sex from procreation, like you said, with no side effects. They would just... And you wouldn't have to tell your partner about it. You just take the pill in the morning and then nothing... Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, you'd have that control and it's independent of this person and no side effects. So irony upon ironies, the drug that was supposed to give us sexual freedom and liberation depresses our libido because it suppresses <laughs> our sex hormones and it shrinks our clitoris and it makes it harder for us to reach orgasm and it is associated with depression, anxiety. So I feel like there's a place for now modern feminists, like you know, yourself and myself to really start looking. Feminism means something different to us now. We have different challenges than the women of the 60s. So now we are not at the place where the average woman has four to six kids. We are not at the place where we're not having these conversations with our partners for the most part. We're at the place where we do have a lot of agency, more so than we did around how many children, how we want to build our families. And it's really important that we have the right to know what the side effects are. So I can come across as very anti-pill, of course, because I'm bringing up all the research. But at the end of the day, what I think is so important, so what breaks my heart, if you are 15 or 16 or 14 and you're put on the pill before you even had a chance to hang out in your adult body for a while, before you really know yourself, if the pill causes you to have low libido and feel depressed and anxious and have panic attacks and all of those things, what's more likely to happen is that your doctor is going to put you on antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds because most physicians don't seem to take the young lady off of the pill for a couple of months as port of call just to see if it could be related to the pill. You have women then who are in their mid-20s, early 30s, who are now ready to start families. And it's only then when they're coming off of these drugs that they realize, oh my gosh, I thought I was a depressed person. Oh my goodness, I always thought I was just anxious. Oh my goodness, this is the first time I've ever had a libido. I really just thought I didn't have one. I mean, in my perfect world, really all I would want to see is for clinicians to just be honest and just go through the side effects just so that you know there's a few things that can happen when you go on this medication. If you feel depressed or anxious, if you notice that you have recurrent yeast infections, if you start to have panic attacks, if you start to notice that sex is painful or that you don't feel like having sex, if you notice that, you know, just the broad variety of specific things. If you ever have headaches, you need to come back and talk to me. You know, most women are, are fairly, do fairly well on it. But if you have any of these symptoms, I need you to come back to me so we can really talk about it. That's all I want. Right. So some form of informed consent, just like if you're going to have surgery, you have a right, you have to sign a document saying you could die from this. You could get an infection. You could A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you have to sign off on it and say that you were informed. And yet with birth control pills, mostly it's just people are handed a prescription and some sample packs and they start it and nobody discusses the risks. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the problem. I do want to give people hope because there are perfectly healthy alternatives that work just great and you can have your cake and eat it too, have your pleasure, have your orgasms and, <laughs> and enjoy them and not have babies because you won't get pregnant. So let's talk about what are some options that people can use instead of hormonal birth control. Yes. Well, I love this topic. 
also, I did grow up in a different time. As I mentioned, when I was growing up, condoms were heavily pushed. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and there was all of this talk about HIV and AIDS. And so there was this huge push for safe sex, and that meant, that actually meant using condoms. So I find it interesting now that a lot of, there's been a shift and there's this idea that if you're not on some sort of hormone that you will get pregnant and not being on a hormone is associated with trying to get pregnant because I've worked with a number of women who have side effects and they have issues. And then when they go to their doctor and they say, look, <laughs> I've given it a good go, but I don't think this works for me. I think I want to come off of whatever it is, have my IUD taken out, whatever it is. And the doctor will say, well, you know, you should start taking prenatals because you'll be pregnant in a month. So with every, as a fertility awareness educator, a lot of women are often surprised to hear me say that I don't think that every woman on earth is going to choose fertility awareness. I think that this is the reason why we have multiple options for birth control. But there are women who do want to understand how their cycles work. And fertility awareness is an important option for women to know about. When you learn about your menstrual cycle, and you smash some of the myths, when you learn that you're not fertile every single day, there's a small window of fertility that you can identify. If you take the time to learn as a teacher, I do recommend that you learn with a teacher if you're wanting to use the method as birth control. But the great thing about fertility awareness is that it gives you options. If you really understand how your fertility works and how your fertile window works, I always say that it would make, if, you, if you're using barrier method, it makes your chosen barrier, it gives you the opportunity to use it perfectly at the time when the only time in your cycle when you can get pregnant. You know, I've heard all of the, a lot of couples don't like to use condoms, but condoms are 98% effective when used correctly. I'm not sure what the level of education for the level of sex education is these days, because I've spoken to a number of women who have no idea that you can't use oil with condoms. Like you can't use a condom with olive oil or Vaseline because it basically destroys the latex and the condom would break. So I feel like there is a need to go back to like the basic education of how to use a condom correctly, how to make sure we're using condom-friendly lube, understanding how to, to do that and understanding your options. So the non-hormonal options, if you're not wanting to use a hormonal method, many women use the copper IUD effectively. So the copper IUD I mean, the benefits are that you get to keep cycling. Some women may be uncomfortable with the fact that because you're ovulating and menstruating, it is possible that the sperm could be meeting the egg and then the copper IUD is making the endometrium inhospitable. So some women may not be comfortable with that. But for women who are like, for women who have a good experience with it, it's a great option that allows you to keep your hormones without conceiving. Right. I'll just interject there that it does not cause miscarriage if that's what people are believing. It changes the motility of the egg and sperm so they don't meet. So it does not cause miscarriage. Yeah. But it is possible. And ectopic pregnancy mm -hmm. is one of the potential risks of it. It's so, possible, but it's not the way it usually yeah. functions. Mm -hmm. Yes. The main mode of action is the spermicidal effect of the copper and also creating that slight degree of inflammation inside the uterus so that the uterine lining is inhospitable. But it's just one of those things that similarly with the birth control pill, it's supposed to suppress ovulation, but there's like that slight chance that it, something could happen. And then the endometrium is also inhospitable to sperm. So there's multiple modes of action. But yes, I think it's important to dispel the myths about those things. And diaphragm, you know, that was my first form of birth control. And it's one of my favorites. And I, you know, I asked myself over the years why people were not interested to it, or they might be resistant to it. And I think it gets back to not really being familiar with you talk about sex education, but we almost need education, young girls on what's going on down there. What does it look like? What's the anatomy? And, you know, I used to routinely when I did gynecology, give people mirrors and show them this is what's here this is what's there so I think that really there is like the mystery of down there and people aren't familiar with their anatomy or what's going on but a diaphragm is a, a very effective and it doesn't affect your hormones at all so it's one of my favorites one of the challenges with the diaphragm especially for women who have never looked at themselves or touched themselves or if they've never used a tampon or a menstrual cup is that you have to insert it into the vagina. You have, it has to be placed behind the pubic bone. So you do have to actually interact with your body. And one of the challenges, I mean, I think 
many years ago, it was easier for you to go to your doctor and doctors were trained and experienced in fitting diaphragms. And it's not, I mean, there's different types of diaphragms. So you can certainly buy the Kaya diaphragm that doesn't require a fitting. But there was a time when you could go to your doctor and have a diaphragm fitted. And most doctors were well-versed and experienced in that. And these days it's not, many doctors may never have done that before. So there's certain challenges there. But the great thing about a diaphragm as well, like most barrier methods, is that it can be combined with other methods. So when you to use a diaphragm correctly, it's intended to be used with spermicide. And so you want to have a vagina-friendly spermicide, but you can use a diaphragm along with condoms. The dirty little secret, many couples use withdrawal. So I'm not promoting withdrawal, but just saying it out loud because there are a lot of couples who use that maybe in combination with their diaphragm so that to try to kind of increase the effectiveness. But I think the bottom line is that there are a lot of non-hormonal contraceptive options that are effective. And if you can combine that knowledge with knowledge of your cycle and how it works and how to identify your fertile window, then it is possible to prevent pregnancy effectively without hormones. So for women who primarily use fertility awareness, so there are many different fertility awareness-based methods, but essentially the central point is understanding that there's a certain window of time when pregnancy is possible before ovulation, and then there's a certain point in the cycle where it's not possible. And you will still have to figure out how you're going to manage your fertility during your fertile window. So all of these you need to understand all of the different non-hormonal methods. And so some couples will use a barrier method or a combination of barrier methods. During the fertile window, some couples will not have sexual contact at all. And some couples will engage in non-penetrative sex so that there's no mixture of fluids, which is how pregnancy occurs. I'd be curious your experience, but one of the things that has surprised me over the years is that So let's say I'm working with, uh, or let's say I'm working with a woman who's in her 30s, or even in my personal life, I'm speaking with a woman, you know, she has a fabulous career, she does all kinds of complicated things in her life. But when it comes to the thought of preventing pregnancy without hormonal birth control, there's often this idea of I could never do that, I think I would just be pregnant the second, like there's this huge fear of switching from a hormonal method to a non-hormonal method because of this idea that if I'm not on hormones, I'm going to get pregnant immediately and there's no way for me to prevent pregnancy. And I think it's really, yeah. I think it's really interesting and, and really I, unfortunate. Well, I think we, we really reinforce that culturally. I mean, you look at all the direct-to-consumer marketing that goes on with very happy, fun-loving, freedom-experiencing women in commercials and ads on these hormonal birth controls. And clinician practice is very much driven by the drug industry. As residents, we really, we go to... To medical school, we learn all this intricate science of the body. And then we go to residency and we're kind of told, do what I do because this is how you do it. And a lot of that is driven by drug companies who bring you lunch and tell you about the latest, greatest pill. But also I realized that this happened to me is that I bought into and kind of abdicated my own agency as a physician to what was proven and the double blind placebo controlled trial and what I was told by my higher ups and I stopped questioning. And it wasn't until my own health failed and I started asking questions and say, well, wait a minute, this isn't working. And that I started finding the answers and I found functional medicine that I discovered the truth of what I had left back in medical school and said, no, this really is valid. And hormonal contraception is causing all these functional problems. So I think that really you have a culture that has, you know, just like you see people drinking Pepsi and Coke on TV and they're all thin and happy and healthy and that none of them have diabetes, you know, they're not obese and sticking their finger to check their sugars, but that that's not the reality of people who drink Coke and Pepsi and soda every day. The reality is if you drink that every day, you are going to get sick. You'll probably get diabetes and have a whole host of health problems. It's the same. It's the depiction and the culturalization of what hormonal contraception means. And we've really created the belief that it is the ultimate freedom and it is the most effective way to prevent pregnancy. And so what I think is needed is education. I have never met a woman 
who, when you explained these issues we've been discussing with her in detail and helped her to understand the truth of what's happening to her body, what these hormones are that she's putting in her body, nobody's explained that to her, what, how, what their effects are globally, not just for her fertility, but also for her sex drive and her cognitive and neurologic function, her musculoskeletal function, all systems of the body are affected, who wasn't horrified and who then didn't say, oh my God, like nobody explained this to me. I didn't know. Thank you for explaining this to me. And they're willing to do something differently. I think education is key. So that's a huge part of what I do when I work with people is educate them on what's been happening with their body. And I have yet to see, and I'm not the type of doctor who tells people what to do. I am an educator. And so I educate them and they say, I'm getting off of this. And that's their choice. And then they're willing to try other methods, whether it is a copper IUD or rhythm method and maybe barrier methods on in the fertility window, but they no longer see it as an inconvenience. And they also just come out of the illusion that we've created that this is the only way they can have their life be the way they want it. Does that make sense? It does. And you were talking about in the context of your profession, like having that agency to really question what you're being told. But I feel like there's this idea that women are too stupid to figure this out. And when I say that I don't believe that fertility awareness is for everyone. I do. And and even for women who want to do it, it's not necessarily the perfect thing for them at every single point in their lives. From my experience, the type of women who decide that this is what they want, they're the ones who are going to read the books. They're the ones that are going to take the classes. They're the ones that are going to actually chart and write these things down every day. Women self-select to this method. And when a woman is motivated and when she's willing to take the time to learn something, she can certainly do it. And so I think it's unfortunate that so many of us question our ability to learn something. If you can learn how to drive, if you can do your job well in whatever field that you work in, then you're perfectly capable of learning this method and using it effectively. When the research studies are done, they're done on women who are taught by instructors in a specific method and perfect use, the effectiveness approaches the pill, 99.4%. Of course, typical use is different, but we have to look at those typical use studies because they're often including everything. They're including women who are looking at an app and throwing things in and have no idea what they're doing. So when we're actually looking at typical use, the studies are so broad that it would be, you know, we really need to have a better look at that. One thing I wanted to mention that I think is important because it's, all, it's very important as a woman for us to be able to have that control, for it really to be in our hands for how we're going to manage our fertility because we're the ones who obviously get pregnant <laughs> and have to deal with that fallout, whether, you know, however that looks. But we are not in the 40s. It's not the same conversation as the women were having back when the pill was first created. I think that not being on hormonal birth control provides the opportunity for us to involve our partners in this conversation and for us to give our partners that opportunity to take a more active role. I feel like as a like in the new wave of feminism, it can't just be assumed that as a woman, I'm just going to take care of it and the entire burden of reproductive labor is on me. And so part of what I think is really interesting, so for me, all of my personal kind of sexual history. I've never used the pill in the context of preventing pregnancy. And I've had to negotiate the terms <laughs> for every sexual relationship I've been in based on me not being on her, uh, birth control. A lot of women who've been on the pill have never really had to negotiate those terms. And of course, it's terrifying to think of what could happen. But I think that it's a, it's a, an opportunity yeah. for because you can't not be on hormonal contraception and not have a conversation with your partner. So it's an opportunity to, in my experience and opinion, to really bring men into this conversation so that they can shoulder their responsibility in, we can both shoulder it together, I guess. Yeah, I think that what's going on with the current status of our hormonal contraception is really requiring us to grow up and have mature conversations 
men and women both, and women with ourselves and with our doctors, I think that one of the reasons why women find it so overwhelming is that the people that they trust to counsel them and educate them about their health, when they learn the truth about the hormonal contraception they've been on, they almost feel betrayed by the medical profession. Then it kind of becomes, and I even had someone say this to me, what hope do I have of figuring this out? If you're a physician and it took you this long and it was this hard for you to figure it out. And I really took that to heart and started thinking about it. So I get why people consider it so threatening when they hear this information. But if you're listening, I encourage you to look at the fifth vital sign, read it, educate yourself, whatever age you are, all the way from preteen to teen on up to your fertility years, perimenopausal, menopausal, it is going to educate you. She cites over a thousand scientific studies in the book. It is very detailed and evidence-driven and evidence-based. And um, you're really going to be enlightened. And I always say ignorance is not bliss. You can't make changes that are going to be effective for your health to move it in a positive direction until you know the truth. So sometimes we have to strip away some uncomfortable lies to get to that truth. And it's not fun and it's not pretty. I know I've been through it personally, but the end result is that your health will improve, your vitality will improve, your life will improve, and you'll be more empowered just because of the process of who you become in learning that truth, and being able to stand for it. So where can people find out more, Lisa, about your book and your work? Well, thank you so much for that. And I love what you just said. Just had to say that. (laughs) So important. Rewind that and listen to it again. The book is available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, audiobook formats. You can get the first chapter for free over at thefifthvitalsignbook.com. I'm pretty active on Instagram, always talking about the pill and sharing research. So at Fertility Friday, if you like podcasts, I just released my 300th episode. So quite a bit to listen to there. So just type Fertility Friday into your podcast player. And then the main website is just fertilityfriday.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. You've shared so much important information. And again, if you've been listening, don't be alarmed. Don't get upset. Just educate yourself. That is empowerment, education, knowledge, empowerment, and get yourself some tools so you can make some changes that will help you move your health in the direction that you are wanting. And that's probably towards Brilliant Health. And the name of the podcast is Her Brilliant Health. I'd love it if you could share with everyone before you leave what that means to you. But yeah, no, thank you for having me. If you could share with everyone what Her Brilliant Health um, means to you. Well, that's a good question. Well, given what we've talked about today and my passion for connecting women with their cycles, it really does mean reconnecting with your cycles and with your femininity, what it means to be a woman. And I recognize that not all individuals who menstruate identify as women, but really just connecting with your body, with your cycles, and understanding that connection between your cycles and your health and letting that journey lead you to developing your own brilliant health. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and send it to someone who would benefit from it. If you love the show and really want to support it, please go to iTunes, write a review and subscribe. This helps other women find us so that they too can heal and enjoy brilliant health. I've got a gift for you. If you take a screenshot of your review, Post it on your social media and tag me. I'll send you a special surprise right to your inbox. Thank you so much for joining me. And remember, healing and getting optimally healthy isn't magic, it's science.